But first, let's read our scripture text. And it's found again in Galatians 3, 25 to 29. We're going to have two more sermons from this text, and then we'll move into Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 to 29. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This is the word of God. Now, our text begins with the statement, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And you might think I'm being cheap. To point out right at the beginning, it doesn't say now that baptism has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now that circumcision is over, we are no longer under a tutor. But it says now that faith has come. Now, I admit that that word faith carries everything in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it's that it's a large concept that's carried in that word. Beginning with chapter 3, verse 6, the Apostle Paul has been declaring what? He has been declaring that there are not two methods of salvation, one for the people of God in the Old Testament times before Christ, and another for the people of God since Christ's incarnation, one keeping the law and one believing in and placing one's faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, He has hammered home the point that Old or New Testament salvation has always been and will always be only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know you're sick of hearing it, but imagine the people that listened to Galatians the first time. They were sick of hearing it, too. They say, "Okay, all right, I've got it. It's okay. You can stop now. The horse is dead. Get off it. But the horse isn't dead. This horse never dies. So then the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9, points out that this is how Abraham was saved in the time of the patriarchs, back in the Pentateuch, in the Old Testament. He says in Galatians 3, beginning with verse 6, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham was circumcised, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that those who are of the circumcision, who are sons of Abraham. But that's not what it says. It says, therefore, be sure that it is those who are faith, who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of the circumcision are blessed with Abraham the believer. That's not what it says. And it also doesn't say those who are of the baptism are blessed with Abraham the believer. It says, those who are of what? Of what? Of what? Faith. Faith. Say it all. Of faith. And that is how every believer in Jesus Christ is saved also. Old Testament Jews are not saved by keeping the law, and specifically the law of circumcision. They are not saved by keeping the law of circumcision. Rather, they are saved through faith in the Messiah who was to come. New Testament Christians are not saved by keeping the law, and specifically the law of... 
Now, see, you could say either circumcision or baptism. The whole of the book of Galatians is, is hammering against circumcision. But you see, automatically you say baptism. And that's also right. All right? New Testament Christians are not saved by keeping the law, and specifically the law of baptism. Rather, we are saved through faith in the Messiah who has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Or may be seated. It always is appropriate for us to uh, call attention to ourselves by doing things that nobody else in the congregation is doing, like kneeling, lifting hands, standing, sitting. I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but I'm trying to inoculate you to the reason that the Lord uh, can be dishonored among us, namely that we're more thoughtful of people around us and what they'll think than we are of him. And uh, if it helps you to sit up front and not think about the people that are in front of you, I notice that it's much easier for me to enter worship when I am sitting up front. Now, that might be the opposite for you. You might like looking at people as you worship, and that might help you. So, whatever, but please do uh, see in Scripture that we are not simply to go through the outer exercises, but that it's to go to our heart. And I believe that today in our clean culture that that does mean that our bodies are involved in worship and not simply stand, sit, stand, sit, stand, sit, but lifting hands, kneeling, uh, sometimes with tears, sometimes with laughter and dancing. We recently got accused by somebody who visited us of having dancing in our church, and I, I was quite confident it hadn't happened, although I wish that it had. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking this morning, it is true that there will be dancing in heaven. I'm, I'm certain of it. And uh, John Dunn talks about, uh, while we're here on earth, we should have our, our voices tuned so that when we get to heaven, they're on pitch, right? You musicians understand that, right? And so if heaven is going to involve your body and not just your mind, then come on, get on pitch. And don't be cerebral automatons. All right. This week I thought I was going to go into neither male nor female, and if you look at your bulletins, you'll see that that's what it says. But um, unfortunately, I began writing, and as I wrote, I thought, now I'm not going to put this to rest yet, this issue of baptism, because I agree with uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, not about infant baptism, <laughs> but I agree with Spurgeon that the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, the doctrine that by virtue of baptism, spiritual reality changes, exoperiopera, I believe that that doctrine is one of the um, most evil and destructive doctrines that has ever hurt, hit the Christian church. Now, I'm going to say something to a couple of you who uh, know with me what it is to love Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson, if you don't know who he is, that's fine. Uh, but if you do know who he is, um, I've spent a, a lot of time this week reading a conflict that's going on between Wilson and other Reformed Christians. And a couple of years ago, I was talking to Doug, and I told him that I was very concerned about sacramentalism with him. And I am concerned about that with some of you in our congregation. Now, when I was talking to David 
Carell about what I was going to be preaching on this morning, David exhorted me not to blow the sermon, just talking to those of you that are uh, readers of theology, and, and I agree with him. But I want to spend a few minutes on this because it is my conviction that at the heart of the Christian church denominations, at the heart of much of Lutheranism, at the heart of, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church, and at the heart of much Presbyterianism, is baptismal regeneration. Whether it is taught explicitly or whether it is practiced, it's the same thing. And you'll notice that our church identifies itself as being both Reformed and Evangelical. And it is the evangelical part of this that I want to impress upon you this morning. When we say that we are evangelicals, what we're saying is that we believe in experimental religion. Now, that might be something that doesn't make any sense to you. But think about it. Experimental science. That means that you don't sit and write all day, but you actually do something. Right? You experiment. An experimental five-year-old boy, you know, can bring terror to his mother, all right, because he's actually doing things. And evangelicals have always believed that you must be born again. And that's the central location in Scripture where we point to the fact that the heart must be changed, that it's not enough for us to be baptized. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something at the end of this sermon that will make those of you who automatically identify yourselves as evangelicals a little bit uncomfortable. Old Testament and New Testament believers are saved the same through faith. Okay? Through faith. Verse 7, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And this theme is repeated again and again in Scripture. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his, on Jesus' name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of baptism. Okay? No. But of what? Of whom? Of God, born of God. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Later in Galatians chapters, chapter 4, 6, and 7, the theme is repeated. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, God sends the spirit of faith into our hearts. That spirit of faith cries out, Abba, Father, and this is what it is that proves that we are sons and heirs of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the believer is united with Christ. And it is this union with Christ which is the means of the believer's adoption as sons of God. He is united with Christ and he becomes a son of God. For you are all sons of God, verse 26 of our text, through Faith in Christ Jesus. And this word all is the context for the frequently quoted out of context verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It is not the works of the law 
It is not our own effort to conform to God's standard that brings us all together. That makes us all one. We cannot become sons of God by anything we do, but what Jesus Christ, God's Son, does. It is faith in Jesus Christ that makes us all one. Faith is the tool by which God adopts us as sons. Now, all I've done is summed up the teaching of the book of Galatians and the book of Romans and all of Scripture. That's all I'm doing. Now, two weeks ago, we began to look at the way that this text is twisted to mean something contrary to its plain sense. And we learned that there have been many in church history who have used verse 27 to say something like, baptism saves us. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And if we had not been studying the book of Galatians, and if I were to pull out this text, even in the context of the few verses before and after it, you could see how easily I could tell you that, that God is pleased to use baptism and that God never, uh, God never despises the physical things of life, that, that God gives us sacraments, that he gives us the water, that he gives us the bread and the wine, that, that God loves to use flesh and blood and soil. And, and you could imagine me building this. And then, if you were an evangelical and you'd grown up in a place that didn't really have a doctrine of church, where people were willy-nilly allowed to come to the Lord's table without being baptized, without submitting themselves to the eldership of the church, and, and, and everybody chose day by day which church they'd belong to, and church really was sort of this voluntary association that changed week by week or month by month or year by year. And you'd grown up in that and, and you'd grown up that all that mattered was the heart. And you, you know, you shouldn't ever take a command about lifting holy hands seriously. And certainly, uh, you know, we don't have to any longer live with women being adorned in their hearts instead of with gold and fancy jewelry. And, you know, in other words, if you've grown up an evangelical where the only thing that matters is your spirit, all right, your relationship with Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, you have a pastor who says, you know, God works through the sacraments. And you begin to see that God does work through the sacraments. And, and, and you have a pastor who says, you know, the church has authority. And you begin to see that your church you grew up in didn't have any authority. You know, there was no practice of discipline. There were, you know, the elders, you never saw them. You never heard them. You never knew who they were. Can you imagine how you'd become susceptible to all of a sudden turning into somebody who has a very high view of the church and because the sacraments are the tools that God uses to make a distinction between the church and the world, a very high view of the sacraments. And the more you'd study the church and the way that the elders are given the power of the keys, Jesus did give them that, can't you imagine how a completely vacuous childhood in evangelicalism with no doctrine of Scripture and no doctrine of the sacraments and furthermore, no bells and smells. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you go to church in a gymnasium, you know, and it's not real holy. I mean, <laughs> maybe this is. <laughs> but that's as close as we get to holy here this morning, right? No, I'm, I'm just, just kidding. I'm meddling. All right. You go to a gymnasium and there isn't incense and there aren't candles and there aren't icons up on the wall and banners and things that like connect your body and your heart, you know. And then you go in a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox church or you go to a high liturgical Presbyterian or Lutheran church. And all of a sudden you say, like many of us said, having the weddings over at Faith Lutheran, this is what I want when I worship. 
You know, three windows, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you know that's a habit with churches? Windows are three, you know? And then they light the incense and they genuflect and, and, you, and you go, Whoa, I do have a body and it's not just for corruption. Okay, I'm trying to get you to feel how, growing up in evangelical, the bells and smells can look good. But then what's the danger? I'm not saying that God doesn't use bells and smells, although I don't think their place is in the church. But I like bells and smells. But what's the danger? Well, the danger is always that formalism replaces experimental religion. The danger is always that an act replaces faith. Always, always. And that's the center of the book of Galatians. And it's the center of the book of Romans. And it is the center of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And it is always the center of the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, the New Testament apostles were not at all ashamed or afraid of saying, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But if you go and you make a doctrine of how you're saved out of the fact that baptism is put with repentance, what you've done is you've replaced obedience with sacramentalism. And I tell you most assuredly that although there is an incidental appearance of baptism constantly at the point of conversion, you see it all through the book of Acts and you see it used incidentally in text after text of the Bible. It is not, when Scripture gets down and dirty and describes how you're saved, it is not baptism that saves you. It is baptism that a new believer always has done to them because it's an act of obedience and God is pleased to strengthen their faith through that sacrament. And it is not a trifling matter. We'll get to that. Nevertheless, it is not a converting ordinance. What is the converting ordinance? What is the means of grace that converts? Huh? When the Bible gets down and dirty and really lays it out for you, what does it point to? Jonathan Wagner and I have had an ongoing argument. But, of course, it's no argument, because I'm right. <laughs> it's a joke. Jonathan would laugh. Um, and the argument is this. What is the center of worship? New Testament Protestant worship. What is the center? And what I say is preaching. And what Jonathan says is the Lord's Supper. And I say no. The Lord's Supper cannot be administered without what? What always must go with the Lord's Supper? Understanding and faith, but specifically, practically preaching. You never have the celebration of the Lord's Supper in Protestant worship. Well, I shouldn't say never. <laughs> but you're not supposed to without the preaching of the Word. But can you have the preaching of the Word without the Lord's Supper? Sure. 
Calvin wanted to have the Lord's Supper every Sunday in Geneva. But they ended up not having it every Sunday because the leaders of the town wouldn't allow it. He didn't like it, but he submitted to it. And it was not illegitimate worship. We have the Lord's Supper. We used to have it every two weeks when we had uh, morning and evening worship. Now we have it every, approximately every four weeks. But this is not the center of worship. Preaching is the center of worship and the sacraments are the center of worship. I'm not trying to make preaching whoop up on the sacraments. In other words, I'm not having preaching overpower them. But taken together, you have to have the preaching of the word with the sacraments. Preaching of the word and the Lord's Supper. Preaching of the word and baptism. And why is this? It's because preaching is the converting ordinance. Now, where do I get that from? Well, there's a text that should immediately be popping into your minds that you all know much of by heart, and that is in Romans 10. Turn there with me, please. As I was studying for this sermon, I kept thinking to myself about this text. You know, think of how much easier it would have made uh, all these debates about the nature of baptism if it had just inserted baptism in here. Now, listen to this. This is the word of God. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and are baptized, you will be saved. But it doesn't say that. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. With the water he is baptized, but it doesn't say that. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him and is baptized will not be disappointed, but it doesn't say that. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord and be baptized will be saved. But it doesn't say that. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they be baptized without a pastor? But it doesn't say that. And how will they preach and baptize unless they are sent? But it doesn't say that. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news and baptism. But it doesn't say that. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Look. Just once, baptism could have been put in there, but it is clear that the converting ordinance, if you don't mind my speaking that way, is the preaching of the Word, and that it is through the preaching of the Word that God is pleased to give the gift of faith. And yet, there is church after church after church, denomination after denomination, century after century, that teaches that baptism and the Lord's Supper are converting ordinances. And you've got to make a decision. Do you believe it or don't you? Do you believe that God is pleased to use the preaching of the word to work salvation in the hearts of men through faith? Or do you believe that it's some combination of preaching and baptism and the Lord's Supper? 
Reading verse 27 as a plain statement linking salvation and baptism, many denominations today teach or imply that there is a necessary link between regeneration and baptism taught here, and that this link is so direct that people ought to be taught to point to their baptism, not to their faith as the origin or proof of their salvation. Lutheran churches, and particularly the Roman Catholic churches, Christian churches, many Presbyterian churches across history hold to a sacramentalism that focuses their hope in the sacraments, particularly baptism in the Lord's Supper rather than Jesus Christ himself. And I say particularly baptism in the Lord's Supper because Roman Catholics believe in seven sacraments, whereas Protestants believe in two. Now, of course, Lutherans and Roman Catholics and other denominational members would usually not say such things. They would talk about their love for Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ. They would say that Jesus is a wonderful model for us to follow and his death stands at the center of man's history. But push them. And again and again, you come up with a practice that belies their words, namely a practice of baptizing their children at birth. Now, come on, rehearse it with me. They baptize their children at birth. They then take them back to church for confirmation somewhere around the age of 12. Then they go back to church for the wedding ceremony, although even that is almost dead now in Europe. All right? And then they're buried in the churchyard. And they're buried with the words of the prayer book. We give them back to the soil in the clear and certain hope of the resurrection, it says in the prayer book. And what I ask you is that you go into the United Kingdom today and my understanding, the statistics are that 95% of the people who live in Great Britain have been baptized as infants. And what percent do you think are in church on Sunday morning? Five to 10%. But boy, they're baptized, they're christened, and then they're confirmed and they take their first communion and then they show up when they're going to get married because there's something about the church that gives a certain formality and, and presence to a marriage. <laughs> All right? And then where do they go to be buried? Now, what is that, brothers and sisters? We all know what it is. It's sacramentalism. It is this doctrine that, that these things uh, work in and of themselves and that all you need to do is show up at the critical moments, and the critical moments are not week after week submitting yourself to the preaching of the Word, which is the converting ordinance, but rather at the times where you're supposed to be baptized, you're supposed to take First Communion, you take it. And listen, I know this is true of Lutheranism because I hear Lutherans tell me this is what they grew up in again and again, and I had another one tell me it this week. All right? I had these little kids come into my, my office up in Wisconsin from the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, Wells, which is as conservative as any Lutherans are. And these kids sat there oblivious to me being in the office with them. They were in my office. It was a field project from school. And they sat there, and the one turned to the other and said, have you been confirmed yet? And the other one said, no. And she, she or he said, uh, my dad says I have to go, but as soon as I get done with confirmation, he says I don't ever have to go to church again. Now, Presbyterians could say the same thing. The churches I went in, it didn't matter what the kid was, he showed up for confirmation, even if he'd never come before and his parents were never in church, and as soon as confirmation was over, he was gone. That was a step. What is this? This is trust in 
the sacraments. Now, they might not even care about it. They might just see it as good civic religion. But I ask you, the denomination and the pastors and the doctrinal statements that have been written in such a way as to allow that practice to continue in those denominations and churches, that is sacramentalism. Do you understand that? Because it's obvious that the leadership doesn't give a rip about those people's souls in experimental religion. Do you understand that? It's just wrong. It is the pastors milking the sheep, if you don't mind me mixing metaphors. Shearing the sheep, living off the sheep, earning a living off the sheep. Now, you think that's harsh for me to say that. But you know something? If I were to read to you what Charles Haddon Spurgeon had to say about this, it would, it would make the hair stand up on your head. In fact, I'll do it. Here's what Spurgeon says. I hate their doctrine, but I love their honesty. And as they speak, but what they believe to be true, let them speak it out, and the more clearly the better. Out with it, sirs, be it what it may, but do let us know what you mean. For my part, I love to stand foot to foot with an honest foeman. To open warfare, bold and true hearts raise no objection. It is covert enmity which we have most cause to fear and best reason to loathe. He's talking about baptismal regeneration and he says this. It is impossible but that the church of Rome must spread when we who are the watchdogs of the fold are silent and others are gently and smoothly smoothing the road and making it as soft and smooth as possible that converts may travel down to the nethermost hell of popery. Now, this is not the Reformation time. This is last century in England. We want John Knox back again. Do not talk to me of mild and gentle men, of soft manners and squeamish words. We want the fiery Knox. And even though his vehemence should ding our pulpits into blads, whatever that means, <laughs> maybe some of you Brits can tell me, uh, it were well if he did but rouse our hearts to action. We want Luther to tell men the truth unmistakably in whom we phrase. The velvet has got into our minister's mouth of late, but we must unrobe ourselves as soft raiment, and truth must be spoken. And nothing but truth for all of lies which have dragged millions down to hell. I look upon this as being one of the most atrocious. That in a Protestant church there should be found those who swear to the Lord's table without properly discerning the body of Christ. You will see that this is not a converting ordinance. And if you look at Simon Magus in the book of Acts, who is baptized, all right, and then immediately tries to buy the power of putting the Holy Spirit into people, and you look at the rebuke that the apostles give to him for his wickedness, and you see them telling him to repent so that perhaps he may be forgiven. All right. Now, one final thing. I told you at the beginning that as evangelicals, we have this same tendency, which is to trust in the external rather than the internal thing, to turn away from experimental religion and trust in external actions. This is an article my dad wrote back in the 1960s. And the question he asks is, is there a parallel between infant baptism and early decisions for Christ? He says, have you ever considered the possibility of a parallel between infant baptism or confirmation on the one hand and early decisions for Christ, or I would say praying the sinner's prayer on the other hand? 
Most of us evangelicals fear an act of religious formality early in life that may be trusted in the absence of conversion. Of course I'm a Christian. I was confirmed at the age of 12, rings an alarm in our minds. Or I was baptized as an infant, rings an alarm in our minds. But, of course I'm a Christian. I prayed the sinner's prayer at vacation Bible school. Doesn't set off the same alarm. Some parents and teachers go even further trying to convince the doubting teenager that he's really a Christian because, quote, you asked Jesus to come into your heart at vacation Bible school. Assurance comes from the adult who remembers an act rather than from the Holy Spirit who may or who may not indwell the life. Not all doubts are bad, my father says. Doubt may be God's instrument of conviction. It certainly is what worked in Jonathan Edwards' wife's life at the beginning of the Great Awakening. Doubt may be God's instrument of conviction and to turn it off by reminding the doubter of a prior act, whether confirmation or hand-raising, may be to perform eternal disservice to his soul. Even in Christian homes, there are individual differences. Not all children will necessarily trust Christ in childhood. Historically, Polycarp, who was martyred when he was over 80, and Jonathan Edwards, spearhead of the Great Awakening, knew Christ before the age of 10. But Augustine, son of godly Monica, and John Wesley, child of the parsonage and of strong Christian parents, both were around 30 years of age when they converted. Adniram Judson, the occasion was the summer between college and seminary. Somehow, most of us feel that if the crop isn't harvested, at least by the teenage, that there's not much hope. And many Christian parents would settle for the comforting assurance that their child, quote, made his decision when he was 13, even if a life of spiritual mediocrity or, I would add, debauchery followed, rather than go through the hurt and blind faith in God until their child comes home from the far country with true spiritual power. Brothers and sisters, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. And immediately you could go off and say what Doug Wilson said, which is, did you know that the Westminster Confession teaches baptismal regeneration? And he says, yes, I say no. The Westminster Confession of Faith goes on and it says, The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that administers it, but upon the work of the Spirit. And the word of institution, which contains, together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. That's a pretty large qualification. Although it is a great sin, the Westminster Confession continues, to contemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or of infants, as that grace belongs to according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time.